Welcome to Not Enough Time in the Week, the podcast where we explore the things that you just didn't have enough time to learn about and read about, talk about this week in a commute-length-friendly format. This is episode two, and it's February 11th. My name's Christina Bonington. I'm a staff writer with Wired. And I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm a freelance writer for The Economist, Fast Company, and a bunch of other publications. Christina, there are a lot of things I don't have a tough time this week to explore. Uh, first one on our list is um, I read this hilarious thing. Uh, I hope nobody's listening to this except our listeners. Um, Samsung is is listening into our conversations. Uh, that doesn't sound exactly right. Can you run that down for us? What, what's going on with Samsung and its smart TVs? Yeah, so what happened earlier this week was um, Samsung updated its privacy policy on its smart TVs, and it had some really kind of um, disturbing language in there. What, uh, what did it say? So the exact language is um, uh, that users should be aware that if your spoken words include personal or other sensitive information, that information will be among the data captured and transmitted to a third party through your use of voice recognition. And everyone was like, what the F? Like, this is some like, like 1984, like spy crap going on. Basically, like, it's really not something to super stress about. So it should not be listening in on you all of the time. There's there's a lot of devices, not just Samsung smart TVs, that kind of listen in. And what they do is they listen for a keyword and then start start recording and listening, listening for a command once you say that keyword. The Microsoft Connect is also voice controlled. There's the Amazon Echo and the iPhone can also do this with, when the Hey Siri command is enabled. Um, oh no, wait, you said Hey Siri. Oh, I just said it. Uh, Oh, it's always listening for that command that like, hey, TV, like it's listening for it's listening for that command. And then it knows to start listening and interpret what you say after that. But that may make people um, uncomfortable. And so luckily, if if you are one of the um, small number of people that have one of these affected Samsung smart TVs it has to have a built-in camera and a built-in mic. You can go into your settings, you go to settings, smart features, and then you can just switch voice recognition off. And then you just don't even have to worry about Samsung listening to what you say and like transmitting it to who knows where. Well, this is the future though, right? Is that uh, as we get more sophisticated devices and we have wearables, we have all this stuff all the time. Are we going to have more things listening to us all the time, whether we've said uh, "ahoy" telephone or not. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, this year, you know, I, w- I went to CES, and so everything has like a Wi-Fi or a Bluetooth chip now. And so, like, I feel like next year we're gonna everything's gonna be audio. Everything's gonna be waiting for your voice commands, and so we're just gonna have like thousands of speakers in our home listening for for hey coffee, hey coffee or tea kettle, <laughs> turn on now. Oh, my God. <laughs> the Internet of Annoying Things. Yeah. Uh, I-O-A-T. Uh, so the issue with Samsung, they need to send your voice data off to be recognized. I think that's something that may not be as well understood, right, is that the devices we're using, we think of them as processing, but they need a network connection, right, because they're sending our uh, voice data off somewhere to some you know vast processing system. Right. So most of these devices don't do the voice the voice analysis on board. There's there's a lot that goes into that. So they usually send the data up to the cloud where it's processed and then 
it's interpreted, and then it comes back down, and those commands are, are executed on the device itself. So we have a ubiquitous collection of devices, or ubiquitously connected collection of devices that is streaming our audio data to the cloud, and nothing could ever go wrong with that. Right, because, you know, no one has ever <laughs> hacked a cloud uh, uh, <laughs> cloud before. Well, I think it, it underlies that uh, that idea that we have super powerful devices, but there's an iceberg underneath, right? Like our iPhone. I remember seeing this stat years ago when the Palm Pilot first came out, and um, somebody wrote this ridiculous essay claiming that a Palm Pilot used, I think, a, a freezer's worth of electricity, but they were allocating all the server-side stuff, and not very well. They were sort of duplicating, so every Palm didn't use one server on the other end. But is that the case with kind of our, our idea of we have these fancy, expensive, tiny devices and there's a lot of capability behind them that we're not seeing? Yeah, definitely. Especially um, cloud storage is the big example. I, I do a lot of Apple coverage. So Apple in particular, they're opening more data centers to, to handle, to offload iCloud and all that processing that happens in the cloud. So you're using this one device, you charge it every day, but it's also sending signals and data off to, the, off to these data centers that are handling mass amounts of information and queries and sending it back to you. I think Samsung was in the news for something else this week too, wasn't it? Yeah, they were. So another interesting thing, again, with their smart TVs was that so Samsung Plex users in particular were finding that they were watching a movie that's stored locally on their hard drive, on their computer, or, or another storage device, and about 20 to 30 minutes in, this Pepsi ad comes on, and it regularly, there's a <laughs> Pepsi ad that keeps appearing every 20 to 30 minutes during playback. And so this is happening for people streaming their, their file uh, across their own network on Google Plex, and as well as... Um, uh, Samsung Smart TV owners in Australia were seeing the same commercial too. Is it at an appropriate point or are you just watching along and like suddenly your program is interrupted with a commercial in the middle of a word or something? Right, yeah, just all, all of a sudden your <laughs> your your stream oh is God. interrupted and it's wow. your it's your own file that that you own. So it's, you know, not only is is it you know, an ad interrupting your experience, but it's it's an ad interrupting your own content that you own. It's not like, you know, when I'm watching Netflix or YouTube um, or, or, uh, or Amazon, you know, even Amazon Instant, I guess, I've paid for that content, but they still, they still own it. If they insert an ad, I'm like, okay, well, that's inconvenient, but, you know, I'm watching this, like, this hour-long thing on YouTube. Yeah, they, they can insert an, an ad halfway through or whatever. But if it's something that you own, that you paid for, or that you acquired, however you acquired it, you don't expect there to be an ad in there. <laughs> That's, well, it, it seems a little unreasonable. I feel like there's this monetization going on of like our own, this is our stuff. And just because they have access to the software that runs it, they're trying to insert themselves into that equation. It seems a little uh, impolite. Yeah. yeah, that's probably not the best means of monetization. And it also, it kind of shoots the idea of, of smart TVs in, in, in the foot. If you're going to be paying all this money for a TV that's web connected, that has all these advanced capabilities, you don't also want it to be inserting ads every 20 minutes when you're paying for an experience that shouldn't be doing that. But apparently this could just be, um, you know, a, a fluke, an accident. Samsung Plex spokesperson has said that, you know, they're not involved in this, but it's still kind of odd and disturbing that this is a capability that they can switch on and off. Yeah, why would companies want to insert themselves into our data stream? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so next up, this kind of falls into... Glenn, something that you uh, look into, um, there's something called an unkillable super cookie uh, that <laughs> Verizon is is using. What's going on here? 
Yeah, this is a great, yeah, it's a great transition from, uh, from people inserting themselves in our data stream to people inserting themselves in our data stream. So Verizon's been inserting a unique tracking ID into their uh, mobile users' uh, communications. So when you go to a website, instead of the transaction that your browser is engaging in, it actually appends a unique bit of what they say is anonymous information. And uh, this is, uh, boy, it ties into a bunch of interesting things. So so Verizon, there, there's so many different issues here. The, the first is the super cookie one. Verizon isn't delivering a super cookie, but they're enabling super cookies. And um, super cookie is a term that was coined just a few years ago by a researcher who took all the different ways that you could create uh, what would previously called zombie cookies. So you'd kill a cookie and it would come back <laughs> from the dead. And It'd be like, why, well, where did this cookie come from? I emptied my cache. I'm using private mode or whatever. Where did it come from? And it turned out that people running advertising networks and developing software to track people were figuring out new places to cache cookie information. And you know, in this case, like a cookie is a generic term. It could be anything that little bit of text that a server wants to store in a browser. But in this case, it's uh, you know, using it to refer specifically to some kind of information that uniquely tracks a, a browser, at least, and sometimes uniquely tracks a user if they can figure out more information and associate it with like a user profile in a marketing database. And the the unkillable part is is pretty bad. So the super cookies, there are, I think, at least 11, maybe there's 14 ways. There's a longer and longer list of things that a programmer can do to stash a cookie so that, or this ID, let's say, that if the actual cookie is deleted, the plain browser cookie, the software will recognize it and they'll say, okay, let's look at the HTML5 uh, database cache. Do we have that? Do we have local storage? Is the e-tag, hey, we have this thing that's supposed to uniquely identify whether a web page has changed. Oh, hey, the e-tag, we can use that. They've cached, they're sending back the code and that. So there are all these different ways and that's sort of, um, that's bad enough. If Ryan's not enabling a way to use a super cookie, but what, they, what they've done is they've created a system that makes it easier for marketers who are trying to track people persistently, even when people don't want to be tracked, to be associated with these records on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and that's that's not good. I don't. I don't want that. I'm. I'm irritated enough when I, you know, I, when I visit a, a website and you know, I look at like a dress or something, and then it follows me for the next like three weeks everywhere I go on the internet. It's like this that, that what I looked at is following me around. So d is this is what what Verizon is enabling? Yeah, it's uh, you know I I think I got uh, profiled as a serial killer because uh, <laughs> somebody I know on Twitter asked a question about super glue and I was like you know I think you can get single use super glue so I go to Amazon I search on it and I'm like oh yeah here's a link there you can get these one use and then for the next few weeks everywhere I went was offering me super glue and I was like come on like I went I looked for super glue once come on I only looked for axes this one time and uh, well, so it allows that kind of thing. So like, there's already that kind of behavior where you can be tracked persistently across sites. And we we have seen like that. You you look for one red dress, and you're going to see red dresses for the next year, Christina. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I know. I'm going to see super glue forever. <laughs> I was looking for a sump pump battery backup. Unit. I'm seeing that everywhere I go. Stop reminding me of our sump pump. Uh, so what Verizon has done is by having something that is a persistent, unique ID that attaches to an individual user on their network. That is catnip to marketing types and advertisers. And one network uh, named Turn uh, w decided to integrate the Verizon cookie into their system. And essentially, they said they were honoring, there's all these provisos, right? Verizon said 
they were rotating this number weekly, that it wasn't persistent. And that there, there's issues with that because even if they change the number, if a company has the previous number, they can sometimes associate it with the next. Like that's been shown. Uh, so that may not help, but that's what Verizon said. And apparently researchers found they weren't. Turn said they uh, were honoring do not track settings and other opt-out cookie such things. And researchers again found they tested. They said, no, they can't find that that's going on. Turn said it was a glitch. And no, they said they still can't find that Turn's honoring it. So there's an incredible value in having very specific targeting information about users for marketing and sales. And uh, Verizon clearly for their own purposes want to do this. Maybe they were going to sell it as a product or be able to package it up to ad networks and e-commerce sites and so forth. Um, AT&T was doing this last year and they said they would stop. And I, I can't, I don't remember if they've been proven. I think they have actually stopped doing it. They said it was a test. It's part of this pervasive issue of that. Your not only is your data sometimes not your own, but even your data stream is not your own. And then your identi identity, your identity isn't your own, that, that they can insert themselves into your own transactions in a way that lets you be tracked when you've actually explicitly decided not to be. I, I don't like this. Do you like this? No, definitely <laughs> no. not. Is, and is there anything that a user can do to, to prevent that? Or this, this is something that we have no control over? Yeah, there's some tools that try to remove super cookies, for instance, or ever cookies, also sometimes called that um, originally. And some of them are effective and some are not. And programmers are very clever and they figure out lots and lots of workarounds. There are some places in which super cookies are stashed that you literally can't do anything as a user. You can't get rid of them. I wrote something for The Economist, I think it was a year plus ago, where uh, because a researcher discovered that they could use some of the drawing tools in HTML5's Canvas sort of subsystem, which is implemented in different ways in different browsers. So if you drew invisible characters and cached it into a browser page, when, the, when these were drawn, it could be um, recalled and compared and used as one of the factors that would help uniquely identify somebody, along with like their IP address and other things. So, so there are developers working like mad on ways to prevent users from breaking that chain. And they say it's, well, a lot of this is accidental. They're not intentionally. And, and then you see things like not allowing uh, do not track and other tools to be uh, used persistently. So here's the good news. Uh, Ashkan Sultani is uh, one of the researchers who since 2009 has been looking into persistent cookies. He is currently the chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission. He's on a stint there. And they've had other people in, in that place, either as staffers or as a CTO or chief technologist, who have also been huge privacy advocates. So this is not going unnoticed. The FCC is apparently had, you know, didn't, FCC and FTC won't say if they have an investigation going, but uh, the FT, FCC has already put out a statement saying that they want wireless privacy protected heavily. There are already senators calling for hearings. So I don't think this is going to go down without a fight, but I think it's going to be a continuous fight in this privacy privacy battle. That's kind of a shame. It is. And, you know, what's also a shame is um, being overcharged, like, by huge amounts. I, I hate that. And, yeah. Uh, you were telling me before we started, your, your dad's kind of an audiophile, but there's a level of audiophile beyond audiophile. This has come up in the last few weeks as, um, is it pronounced Pono? I don't think it's Pono, right? Um, Not Pono. We've been, we've been saying Pono. Pono? I, I, I Pono. honestly can't remember. <laughs> I think po Pono. Pono sounds a little dirty. Oh. I think we call it Pono. <laughs> it's Neil Young's um, glorified $400 MP3 player. It's supposed to just play like the best quality music. Neil Young has his own music store where you can buy 
music um, instead of just buying files from like iTunes or something else. And it's just supposed to be like this super high end audio, mobile audio experience. So if you already own songs, you can't just upgrade them. Like iTunes had that thing when they, when Apple upgraded its encoding quality, you could sort of trade in and pay the difference. But these, you have to make new purchases, right? To get the higher quality recordings, not, not upgrade your songs you bought elsewhere. Right. Yeah. So if you bought a song on iTunes and then you, you want to upgrade it, you can't just upgrade that song with, with, with Pono's player. If you have a higher quality file, you can play it on there or you can you can buy a song through their music store. And the funny thing is for a device that's supposed to be playing like only high quality music, there's actually only a small percentage of the songs in the Pono music store. I think I, I'm, I think I'm pronouncing it different times, different ways each time <laughs> in the Pono music store. That might are, be a marketing problem. <laughs> are actually are actually like high quality lossless files. So what's happened, you know, within the past week or two is the reviews for this player, which was announced, a actually announced a couple of years ago, are finally coming in and it's basically just complete snake oil. So the thing is, so in, in the claims, it's like, oh, the Pono player is so much better, you know, the, the music is so much better and it's not crappy MP3 files. And so basically all their claims are kind of staked on the idea or the assumption that the mp3 files that you're listening to are just really highly compressed, um, have a low bit rate and a low quality. And that's generally not the case anymore. That was the case 10, 15 years ago when Napster was around and people were downloading files through those platforms and, and the files were severely compressed. Just the audio quality was bad. Those files can't be saved. They're going to sound bad no matter what you play them on, whether it's a high-end stereo system or your iPhone. But nowadays, the, the file quality of MP3s is generally a lot better. The stuff that you get through iTunes is, is, is good. It's, um, I think it's generally um, 256 kilobits per second is the bit rate. But it's still not the best. You can get better. There's something called a FLAC file, Free Lossless Audio Codec, and it's been around since 2001. And there's a couple other other lossless formats as well, like WAV files, as you know, what you get on your CD. FLAC files are nice because they take up on your on your device. They take up take up about half the space as a CD file, and and they still have a really good bit rate, which is you know how much data is transmitted per second. So a higher bit rate is better because more information is being transmitted, which means more more sound information, which means a a wider gamut of of audio that you can hear, so it sounds better. And so um, FLAC files are generally maybe have like a one third or so um, less, a one third or so lower bit rate than pure CD quality, but that's still like really good. If you want to listen to good quality, you know, mobile music, that's that's a file, a file type that you'd want to listen to. And so what happened is when people were reviewing the Pono player, if you're listening to, you know, an MP3 that you got from iTunes, it really kind of sounds the same, whether it's on the Pono player <laughs> or whether it's on another device. If you're listening to, you know, a higher quality file format, uh, again, it, it sounds higher quality no matter what device you run it on. So the, the Pono player isn't actually doing anything to make lower quality files sound better or anything. Do you think people can really tell the difference between between FLAC and most modern encodings? I think the average listener, especially, uh, unfortunately, my generation that grew up on those crappy MP3s, <laughs> I think we a lot of us have a hard time telling telling the difference. That's not the case. Um, as you mentioned earlier, my, my dad's a big um, uh, audiophile. 
he he cannot stand listening to mp3s he wants the highest quality stuff for for people of a different generation that like they they can tell the difference between a flag file and an mp3 file they can tell the sounds are richer mp3 um there's still some compression going on and so a lot of times things like uh like cymbals, um, guitar, and reverb are kind of the things mm. that get kind of compressed out of the MP3 file. And so, you know, those are things that just kind of make the audio sound richer. It makes it sound like you're actually in the room with those instruments. And so the higher the quality file, the more that you get that experience. Well, that's interesting. Well, I know that there's no end to money you can spend, though, to, to ostensibly boost it up and Let's say I want to spend, how much money could I spend on an audio cable? I could spend any amount, right? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are audio cables, if you're setting up your home speaker system, that run up to like $7,000. It's it's kind of insane. And again, that's, that's getting into the snake oil thing again, too. These cable makers claim that, you know, as, as the data is transmitted along the cable, that you're losing, your, your signal is weakening, and uh, you're losing some intensity and clarity. But by buying a cable that's made of like super pure copper and has these processes like it's it's hand wrapped with insulation rather than heat shrinked or you know the the cable connections aren't soldered they're just crimped that it's gonna eke out the just the best the best audio quality that you can get and it's really like no (laughs) (laughs) and then the best part is when you read the digital cable reviews like this hdmi cable this uh um oh what is it it's that format TOS link or TOS link, which is a digital optical format. And people will say, oh, this one is better. This one is better. I'm like, well, there's a bit loss, so there's no bit loss. Is it really, could you really have a better digital cable unless it's actually failing, right? Yeah, yeah. So so the thing with modern cables, as long as it's, it's a decent quality cable, it's not something... If you bought a cable for $5 at the gas station, you know, I, I would suspect that <laughs> there might be some quality control issues there. But, you know, if, if it's a decent cable, the main thing that you don't want to happen is sometimes the signal can reflect back from the end of the cable. And that's just, that's prevented through impedance matching, which is something that should be built into modern cables so so if you buy a decent cable that should be taken care of for the average person you know if you if you you know spend three hundred dollars on a cable you're not really going to be able to tell the difference between like the the, the fifty dollar cable that's good to know i'm going to only buy garage station cables because that's <laughs> I'm, o- I'm only going to buy gas station cables because you just told me to no. <laughs> but, uh, I, I think i bought i think i have bought one department store cable at like a tiny little department store in a pinch but uh that's all. That's that's the limit there. <laughs> so changing gears a bit. So outer space. I love outer space. And so apparently Al Gore's satellite is being launched. It's called Discover. What does it do? It, it, it's going to monitor space weather. It's really cool. So this is the reason Al Gore invented the Internet is for this purpose. No, I'm, that's so <laughs> terrible. He never he, he he is he is one of the primary people for the re, who helped with the funding and the rules that let us have the internet. So let's say that, yeah. Discover Deep Space Climate Observatory DSCOVR. I, I love space too. In fact, I love it so much that in uh, in this week's Economist, uh, it's on, online now and out in a couple of days. Uh, there's a chart that I developed for them that shows all of the obsolete important satellites that we operate <laughs> for purposes like GPS and deep space weather observation and climate change and so forth and how. Far Far out they are from being actually replaced, and how old they are uh, in orbit. And uh, so, Discover 
is a, a one of its purposes is what Al Gore originally intended. He he thought we should be able to see the big blue marble in space. We had nothing aloft that would let us see the Earth as one piece. So his proposal was: Wouldn't it be great to have a continuous feed of the Earth? It would, you know, it's sort of like a little piece nicky, but also there's good scientific purposes. And he was told it could be built really fast and cheap, and it was. And then it was never launched because the Republicans took over, and nobody is gonna fund Al Gore's satellite. Come on, like so it's. It was actually kind of mothballed for a long time, but the intent of it was it's going to go out to the Sun Earth L1 Lagrangian point, which is about a million miles from Earth. And it's uh, the L1 point, uh, like Lagrange points, uh, as you know, like Lagrange points, maybe you do, and I'm a sci fi buff, and it sounds like you are too. So, we know. Um, so Lagrange points are, are points of equilibrium where the gravitational pull of different celestial bodies uh, provides kind of a calm, uh, like a, a backwater in the eddies of gravitational pull. So the Sun Earth L1 one point is a million miles from Earth directly between us and the sun, and some of the Earth's gravity balances some of the sun's gravity, and it takes much less propulsion and other uh, operations of a satellite to stay relatively stationary there with respect to its position between us. So it's a great place if you've ever wanted to know whether a coronal mass ejection is coming. Well, let me tell you. The L1 point is great. It's relatively affordable on the scheme of space missions to get something to L1 and keep it there. When the sun has massive uh, solar events like these things, the coronal mass ejections or other things in which it's releasing massive numbers of highly charged particles, at L1, it's possible to observe this solar wind, this oncoming storm, and the satellite can provide from 15 to 60 minutes advance warning to Earth. And that's important because these charged particles, if in sufficient quantity, can actually disrupt planes above uh, the polar, the, the planes doing transpolar routes. They can uh, take down electrical systems. They can damage uh, electronics in satellites. It's, it can be really harmful. And one estimate said that if there was a really massive storm, everyone on Earth would be fine, but we could suffer trillions of dollars in damage if it hit at the right point and the right intensity. So wow. this isn't a trivial, I know it's not a trivial thing. Yeah. So, so given, uh, you know, say you have 15 minutes to an hour of notice, is there anything that, that people can do with those satellite systems and our electronic equipment and stuff? Or is it just like, oh, yeah, everything's going to get fried in an hour? <laughs> uh, luckily, many decades since they've understood that these events could cause you know, serious terrestrial or, or orbital uh, problems. So equipment now is made so that it can be dealt with. So the satellites will go into like a quiescent mode, like they'll shut down electronics. They're already shielded to some extent. They'll go into a mode where they're less vulnerable. And uh, because if they're, I think they might even retract some instruments, they might rotate. Like there's all this behavior that can happen to try to take the brunt off. Ground systems can make changes. They can pull load off certain systems. Um, I don't think they've ever had to do like a brownout because of it and like lower the electrical, um, not a full blackout, but like lower the amount of load on the system overall to the extent that people are without power. Uh, they can suspend polar routes or change routes so that planes are only flying on the far side of the earth during it. Um, I mean, in 1989, the Quebec power system suffered a massive outage because of an unforeseen uh, coronal ejection. And uh it costs, I, well, I don't even, I don't know if there's an estimate, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. They replace a lot of equipment, people were without power. It was one of the largest blackouts in uh, in history at that point. There, there's some <laughs> there's some serious consequences to it. So we need something there. And 
the problem was the current system, uh, it's called ACE, uh, it's Advanced Composition Explorer. ACE was launched, I, I've even forgotten now, I think it was 17 years ago, it moved into position. It had a lifespan of a few years. So if ACE suddenly died, we'd be stuck. We would have very little warning. There are a couple satellites out there called SOHO that are also L1, but they're looking at different solar conditions. So they could provide some warning, but they're not, their instrumentation isn't tuned in the same, it's not looking at exactly the same kind of thing. So we would lose this incredible predictive power right at a point where it would probably be really horrible <laughs> given oh, how much we rely on all the time. I mean, we could lose, you know, you could lose satellites in orbit. They might actually be completely destroyed and it takes years to replace them. And there's a lot of things that could go, could go bad with this aging, aging satellite that's out there now. Wow. So, so Discover has been launched. No, it's been delayed. As we record oh. this, it keeps getting delayed. They've had several. It's a, a SpaceX mission. This is one where they're going to uh, test their reusable uh, rocket launch your booster unit. So it's going to go up. It's going to put into orbit. It's going to spin around and come back down, decelerate and land super niftily on this tiny pad if all goes well. It almost did it last time. They think they know why it didn't. And this will be the dawn of a new age in space, reusable launch vehicles. This will change everything because it dramatically, re I shouldn't say that, it's too, <laughs> that's too overblown. It will change the cost structure for getting stuff up into space immensely because the big cost is you make these incredibly expensive vehicles, you figure out you know, how to run them, you test them, they go up and they're gone forever. Yeah. So <laughs> Not so, not so good. So, if if Elon Musk and his gang can make a reusable uh, launch vehicle, then that is fantastic for the continuing trend of the cost of getting stuff into orbit going down, and then that allows more sophisticated telecommunications, Earth observation, um, you know, photography of the Earth and and space observation, both for practical purposes like this and for uh, scientific purposes as well. I mean, uh, Discover has a lot of scientific purposes, but it does have this very practical one as well. Oh, and I should point out, it still has Al Gore's mission in it. It will be taking pictures of the Earth with relatively old camera technology, but you'll be able to see the whole globe, and I believe it's going to send back multiple images a day of the Earth. And there is some utility from a scientific perspective, even with the age of the equipment, but it'll be kind of cool. We can look at the Earth every day with a, a short time lag of, of what it looked like. That's kind of neat. Oh, that's awesome. So Discover keeps getting delayed. Do do you know when the next time it's supposed to try to launch is? It's, it should be, as we record this, it's supposed to be today, which is uh, February 11th. And so it may be up as this version of our show goes live. It may actually already been launched. There, there's been, you know, there were some uh, losses in uh, launches in the last year after a long sequence of, of uh, high quality launch successes from both private companies and NASA. And so everyone's a little concerned. Luckily, these are all unmanned missions or non-peopled non missions going up. So the loss is loss of supplies or, you know, $500 million satellites or, in, or in fact, like projects from colleges, these tiny nanosats that are going up now. Mm -hmm. So the loss does not, so far, there's been no loss of, of human life during any of the mission failures for actual um, missions. There was some loss of life during testing in the last few years, too. But uh, so if a rocket goes boom, everybody's okay, but it's it's sort of a setback. And uh, assuming all goes well, it's on its way to L1 as we speak. Awesome. Cool. Well, I think that just about wraps up this week's edition of Not Enough Time in the Week. I feel like I learned a lot, Christina. Thank you. I did too. So Glenn, if people want to reach us, what's the best way? Well, they could email us at notenough at timeintheweek.com or visit our website at timeintheweek.com or they could find us at Twitter at time in the week. It's crazy how that works. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. And uh, thanks for thanks for chatting. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>